Okay, we're in the Gospel of Mark, so find your place to Mark's Gospel in chapter 1. And uh, as we begin, there, there are some really important things that divide us. You know, our world we live in is a very divided place. Do you guys agree with that? It seems like everybody's on opposite sides of something, and uh, it seems like, um, who was I talking to? I think Russ was telling me that outrage is the new drug of choice. Like people just love to get outraged about stuff. And uh, I think that's so wise. It's so um, perceptive. Well, um, I just thought we would start by thinking about some things that are really important that divide us. Like mullets or no mullets. Yeah. I mean, I would have never thought 80s fashion would come back. I mean, I'm waiting on the big hair, ladies. The big, the big Christina. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought never 80s hair would come back. But for men, bless you. Bless you. In the 80s, I had, I mean, it was all business up front, party in the back. I was, uh, my grandmother had permed it from here back. I was rocking it. I'm telling you, rocking it. How how about this one? Beard or no beard? Beard. Well, thank you. I I feel good about the beard. Um, I like a beard. My wife, not so much. Um, I'm growing this one out to, to... for the Middle East, I'm, I'm wanting to blend, I guess. I don't know what I'm trying to do. How about this one? Apple or Android? Apple. You guys have all been bitten by the serpent. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm an Apple guy myself. Um, but Android people, I feel like Android people are, you know, just, just nonconformists. That's the only reason you're holding on. You don't want to conform. And I respect you. But I just, I can't give up my, my things. All right, um, let's see. Really important. Michael Jordan or LeBron James? LeBron James. What? LeBron no way. Come on. All right. Steve, Steph Curry. Okay, I'm, I'm for that. Okay, so, so many things that we disagree on, right? But most of them are ridiculous. Most of them really don't mean much at all. But as we'll find today in the scriptures, Mark is starting his gospel with the most divisive statements ever. He's beginning this gospel with um, who Jesus is. And this truth matters more than anything you could imagine. We've just begun um, teaching in the gospel of Mark. So if you're just joining us, you're not far behind. We're only on verse two. Um, bless it, Lord. Um, but last time we dug into just the opening line, just the title, Mark's title, which was we tried to memorize it together to see if you can do this. Do you remember? Don't cheat. I see you looking. Don't cheat yet. Mark starts this way. Chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. You want to try it with me now? Now that I've kind of helped you a little bit. Ready? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yes. So right out the gate, Mark is making some bold claims about who Jesus is. And this verse is like a sword. I mean, it's slashing all of the hearers to divide people into, yes, that's true. Or I don't think so. 
There is no middle ground. And the truth is you cannot be neutral on who Jesus is. You must decide he is the Christ, the son of God, or he's not. It's one or the other. Well, now that you've gotten comfortable, stand with me as we read Mark chapter one. We're going to take a look at the first eight verses together. The word of the Lord, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to who you really are. Break our hearts over our sin and give us faith to run to you in repentance. We ask now for your help as we submit our lives, our thoughts, our ideas to your word. In Jesus name and for his glory, we pray. Amen. 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 Be seated, church. So quickly. In this text, I want us to notice three huge truths that the Lord would have us to see. The first one is this. Jesus' coming was God's plan. Now, that sounds very simple, right? I mean, I think most everyone in the room would say, Well, duh. But I just want to make mention of it because Mark does. Notice after Mark makes this huge claim, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. His next words are as it is written. So this would be a conjunction, right? It's it's combining two ideas. He's making a massive claim about, about who Jesus is. And then he's reaching way back hundreds of years ago and pulling from prophetic promises. What are we to see about that? We're definitely to see that Jesus' coming and John's announcement of his coming was planned by God. At least hundreds of years, if not, I would say, All the way to eternity past. But Jesus' coming is God's plan. Mark is proving his point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, by pointing to these prophecies about about a Messiah who's going to come. He's essentially saying, this is how God said it was going to unfold. And look, it's happening. 
So prophetic promises have been made. If you were to check the cross references in your in your Bible, you'll probably discover that um, the first reference is not Isaiah. It's actually Malachi chapter three. And in Malachi chapter three, you know what? It might help us. Let's look at that verse. If you can flip back in your Bible to the last book of the Old Testament, the very last page of the Old Testament, you'll find Malachi chapter three. And look at verse 1. I want you to look at specifically what all's here. The Lord is speaking and He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way. What's the next two words? Before who? Me. Okay, don't miss that. The Lord is speaking. I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, Mark brings this one in to say God has told us this is how this is going to unfold. And in telling us how it's going to unfold, he actually told us that it's he who is coming. And this one is preparing the way for God himself. Well, that's Malachi 3. Isaiah 40, verse 3, is similar. Might help you to turn there. I'll read it. If you don't want to go there, that's all right. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, in this prophecy, Mark is pointing to the, the, the mode of preparation, right? When a, a royal or a king or somebody, you know, a, a, a high up government official in these days was coming to town, there would be forerunners, people who come in ahead of them to say, hey, the magistrate's coming or the governor's coming or the emperor's coming or the whatever it may be is coming. And so these roads, he's coming down these roads. I want these potholes filled this guy can't be selling his chickens over here, right? I mean, this is, they would just say, we've got to clear this path. We need to make a path for the emperor. He's coming. Clear the, clear the path. And in doing that, it would raise some excitement. It would stir the people. They, they would get excited about someone coming. Similar to in our day, I suppose, if the president is coming, Air Force One is going to land at our little local airport. There would be tons of preparation. Tons of secret service would be here. There'd be all kinds of road blockages. It would really be annoying. But that's what they're doing. They're preparing the way for the great one to come, whomever that may be. And in this prophetic quote, what Mark is saying and what Isaiah was saying is that it's not actually the filling of potholes and the the clearing of vendors. That's not the mode of preparation. In this case, it says... A voice, right? A voice in the wilderness. So this preparation comes in the form of a message from a prophet, a preacher. It's not an announcement to clean up roadways. It's a call for repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a rejection of sin and a return to God. And this was his message. 
the voice in the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, what is the wilderness all about? Well, the wilderness, isn't the wilderness where God's people wandered for like 40 years after they were delivered out of Egypt? Isn't that where they wandered? They came out of Egypt, but then they doubted God's promise to bring them into the promised land. They doubted and they disobeyed and God let them wander for 40 years until generations died off, right? 40 years in the wilderness. And now here, the prophetic message is repent and come out to the wilderness. The voice is in the wilderness. Repent and come meet God in the wilderness. Really interesting. The place of the wilderness is, like I said, marked by people's doubt and disobedience. It's a place of testing, of trial, of shoring up a person's faith. All of this is telling us something amazing about our God. Well, it's telling us at least that he has a plan. God planned the time, he's planned the place, and he's planned the person to announce his son. Just after quoting these prophecies, Mark's next words are, the next two words, John appeared. Well, who is John? Do you remember when um, Mary became pregnant with Jesus? There's a consecutive pregnancy that's happening at the not consecutive what's the word I'm talking about at the same time simultaneous thank you simultaneous pregnancies are going on and uh, Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant you remember the story Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah he's a priest and they were very old well beyond the age of conception and yet the Lord had promised them a child it's a bit of a throwback to Abram and Sarah The Lord promised them a child and she became pregnant with the baby John. Well, when Mary was pregnant and Elizabeth was pregnant, they they got to meet each other when they came together. um, What do you what do you remember happened with John in the womb? He he did some somersaults in there, right? He goes to flipping. He's excited. The Bible actually says the Holy Spirit was working in him even then. Wild stuff. John, even then, knew that the baby in Mary's womb was the Christ. Well, this John was chosen to be the voice in the wilderness that Isaiah and Malachi and um, even all the way back as far as Exodus are prophesying about. He's called for us. He's called John the what? John the Baptist. Now, it's not because he's the first Baptist. No. Much as they might like to claim him, it's not because he's the first Baptist. It's because he became known for his call to baptism. Baptism, a cleansing, washing with water that pictures the forgiveness of God given to those who, by faith, repent of their sin. Now, amazingly, John baptized people where? In the Jordan River. Now, why are we spending time on these details? Because I want you to see that God had a plan. Do you notice he walked them through the wilderness? Do you remember how God's people went from the wilderness into the promised land? What river did they have to go through? The Jordan River. Amazingly, John is baptizing people also in the Jordan River. And again, God is demonstrating his plan, his his intricacy with details. It was through the Jordan River that Joshua, the, the first Yeshua, 
led the people from wandering and disobedience and doubt to faithfully resting in the promised land. And now a new Yeshua, a new Joshua, a new savior of his people who's bringing in a new covenant is now leading God's people from sinful disobedience through the Jordan River of faithful repentance. Now that one is Jesus ultimately And here John is preparing the way for Jesus. God has a plan. Will you just say that out loud? God has a plan. I think some of us need to hold on to that, right? Just as we sang a moment ago, when when things get crazy, when life is wild and out of control for you, it's reassuring and helpful to just remind yourself God has a plan. All right. Big truth. Number one. Number two, John the Baptist was God's man. John the Baptist was God's man. When the time was right, Johnny B became a wildly famous preacher, wildly famous. Look what the Bible says. Look at Mark one again. Just just pick this up. Don't miss these little details. All the country of Judea. Verse this is verse five. And all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized. I was reading this week, y'all, I was blown away. I, in my mind, I don't know, maybe the movies and things that I've watched have tainted what the Scripture actually says because they couldn't get enough extras to really portray this imagery here. I was reading some commentaries and most scholars believe this is about 300,000 people that are coming out to the Jordan River. It's a little muddy creek to be baptized by John the Baptist, a man dressed in camel's hair and leather belt and ratty looking fella, eats bugs, right? I mean, this guy, this guy is the one baptizing hundreds of thousands of people. He's become wildly famous. Many in the area have come confessing their sins, the Bible tells us, and being baptized by him. Mark begins with John the Baptist's affirmation of the Christ. Now, we notice John the Baptist is the voice in the wilderness. He's preparing the way for the king. His message is repent. Believe. Be baptized. And all these people are coming out to him. They're being baptized. They are confessing their Sins. Think about John's message. It's not a popular message. The message of repentance is not popular. When you say you need to repent. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? So we would have to say that John is issuing a warning. He's issuing Warning, the call to repent looks to God as judge. It looks to God as judge. And John is warning people to reject their sin and return to the Lord. And he's warning that this is a time sensitive issue. This is what a warning is, right? If if um, if I walk by your house and look in your kitchen window and you're in there just cooking up a storm, you know, and I'm like, hi. And then I look up on the top floor and it's on fire and you're just cooking. Hey, right. My warning to you is time sensitive. I'm not going to finish my walk. 
And be like, well, I'm on, I've got to get my steps in. I'm not going to finish my walk and come back to warn you. The warning is time sensitive. Judgment is coming. There is a judge and he's coming. Get out of that house, right? This is the way John is preaching. There's a sense of urgency to his repentance and it cannot happen. Listen, repentance doesn't happen on your timetable. This is something I think we've got to get a hold of. Many people think, well, I, you know, I'll stop sinning when, you know, fill in the blank. I'll stop this when fill in the blank. That's a garbage way to think. There's a sense of urgency to repentance. Jesus himself repeats this same urgency when he begins to preach in Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What's his next word? Repent. Repent and believe the gospels. What Jesus preaches. He's saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand. Repent. There's urgency there, right? He makes it even more clear in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. In particular, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise, anybody know? Perish. So it's not only time sensitive, it's destination sensitive. John issues warning. Make no mistake, when a warning is issued, embedded in the warning is an offer of grace and mercy, right? The reason we warn is because there is hope of salvation. There is hope to get out of God's judgment. So John offers mercy. The offer of grace looks to God as, not judge, as merciful. God is love. It actually is who he is. His desire is to forgive. Consider Jonah for a moment. Now, you know Jonah as the guy that got swallowed by a fish, right? Jonah went to Nineveh and he went preaching and hoping for judgment. Well, he and God were on different missions, weren't they? God sent him to preach, but God wasn't hoping to judge. God wanted to save Jonah had no desire for the people of Nineveh to receive the mercy of God. And yet God's whole mission in sending him there was to offer his mercy. So even through Jonah's message of judgment, which was 40 days and God's going to destroy you all. That's not a good sermon, right? I mean, I guess it was good in terms of effectual. What happened with Jonah and his preaching? The people repented, didn't they? Sackcloth and ashes, they tore their clothes, they fasted, they even starved their cattle. They repented and God relented. Through repentance, God gives mercy. I want you to know this. God wants to forgive your sin. He wants to forgive your sin. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 is powerful. Uh, The prophet said, God says to the prophet, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is that a good truth or what? It's telling us about the character of God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then here's the call. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? This is beautiful. It tells us who God is. He wants to give mercy. He wants to forgive. Praise God. 
I love Jesus' teachings in Luke 15. He gives three stories, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. You're probably really familiar with the prodigal son story. But the, one, of the, one of the points that's buried in there, one of the truths that's buried into each of those three, if you look at them, at the very end of each parable, there's a party. Amen. The coin is found and everybody celebrates. Let's throw a party. We found the coin. They find a lost sheep. Let's party. The prodigal returns and the father says, put my coat on. Here's my ring. Kill the fatty calf. Let's party. What's the point in Jesus' teaching? Is that God loves it when a sinner repents. He wants to offer mercy to you. So John says, Prepare the way for the king. It's a warning. It is an offer of mercy. Then don't don't pass over baptism. Baptism, y'all, I've been really digging into the significance of baptism and the Lord has been pulling me further and further toward its importance and significance. And here's what I'm seeing in this text from this text. Baptism is both a confession and a profession. Listen, when you walk into that water to be baptized, you're saying, I'm dirty. I need to be clean. It's confession. I mean, it's in the text, right? They came to him. Verse five, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. Can you imagine thousands of people on the bank and each one walks in and stands with John to be baptized and they say, I've been stealing. I've been taking your apples, man. Yours. You. I stole an apple yesterday. I'm I'm like, I'm dead serious. This is their confession. Confessing sin. Like, and there's something powerfully liberating about it, isn't it? God designed this so intentionally. Part of God's prescription for healing is to bring darkness to light. To bring the dark to light. Do you know that your sin thrives in the secret? Like when you try to hide it. And that's our impulse, isn't it? I mean, Adam and Eve from the very get go. Soon as they sin. Oh, my. We're naked. Hide. Cover. God comes to them and they're hiding in the bushes, right? It's our impulse. Our sinful impulse is to hide and be secret and not tell anyone about our sin. Baptism is not that way. It is a confession of my sin and my need for a Savior. That's what baptism is. You walk in the water dirty and you admit it. You tell the world, I need to be clean. Well, you go in telling people that, but baptism is also a profession A profession, right? It's not just confession. It's a profession. And here it is. It's not only am I am dirty. I'm a sinner who needs cleansing. But it's a profession that I believe Christ is the one who can clean me up. I believe God will make me clean. So you go in because of the hope of forgiveness. It's the reason you come to be baptized is not just because you're dirty and need to be clean, but because you believe in the God who makes people clean. 
There is mercy for sinners in the heart of God. Praise God for that. And He wants you to repent, to come home to Him. No matter how you've wrecked things, He will will meet you on the road of repentance. He will put a ring on your finger. He'll throw His righteous robe on your back. He will throw a party to celebrate your return. Hear the call of God through the voice of John the Baptist. A warning of judgment, an offer of mercy. You know, there's two things that baptism portrays that everyone must recognize in order to be forgiven. You must recognize these things in order to be forgiven. One, you must know you're a sinner, right? I am am a wretched sinner who desperately needs salvation. If you don't come needy, you won't come at all. So first, you must know who you are. And then secondly, you must know that you can be completely clean in Jesus. Completely washed clean. First John 1 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and what? Cleanse you of what? All unrighteousness. Not just your past. All of it. He's faithful and just and he and he alone can make you clean. That's beautiful. Number three, Jesus is God's son, our savior. He's God's son, our savior. John the Baptist, his whole thing is to point to Jesus. I mean, even with. Hundreds of thousands of people flocking to him. He doesn't get the big head. He doesn't look around and go, man, I must be good at this whole like, wow, I'm good at putting people under this water. He doesn't get the big head. He keeps his focus on the one who's actually doing the work. I love what he says. He's pointing people to Jesus. John says, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is this is a man who's pointing to Christ. And I want to tell you, beware of any preacher who calls you to himself rather than points you to Jesus. So let's look at these words. I want to zoom in on some words quickly. John says, after me. I I don't know if this hits y'all like it has me, but this is such a humble expression. Just those two words. What's John saying? I'm just a blip on the radar. My whole reason for blipping is to point you to him. After me. I'm here now, but I'll be gone soon. When I'm gone, remember this. He can save you. After me, look at him. After me, look at him. John knew the only way to make the most of your life is to spend it pointing to Christ. What a powerful perspective. He lived for what was coming after him, not just the moment. You know, there's that carpe diem, seize the day kind of mentality. You do that, you're going you're gonna to fail. Don't just seize the day. Give your todays to the one who holds all the tomorrows. 
after me. John says, after me. He says, he who is mightier than I. Such beautiful humility here. It's no wonder people were so compelled to come to John. Because he's such a glory deflector. He's not grasping for glory. He's constantly pointing it upward. He, it's all about him. He's mightier than I. I'm a nobody. I've come out of the woods over there. I'm wearing camel's hair. Forget me. It's about him. It's him. It's him. It's him. With his life and even in his death, John's humility was shouting, Jesus is better. Look to him. He goes on to say, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And the illustration he gives is of washing feet, of untying sandals and washing the feet of someone coming into a house or something. For John, it wasn't enough to say Jesus is greater. He actually needed to push himself lower. He didn't just say, look at Christ, he's greater. He then said, and for me, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Push himself lower. John 3.30, he makes it really clear. He must increase, but I must decrease. John, who was among the greatest of men, by Jesus' own words, counted himself unworthy to be the lowest of slaves for Jesus. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Just wow. But then John says this, I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Well, John knew that he was preparing the way, preparing the way. And he knew that Jesus is the way. John's baptism was an, it was an outward cleansing because he's part of the old covenant, the Old Testament. It's an outward cleansing, calling people to stop sinning. Stop sinning. Turn back to God. Prepare your hearts to receive God's son. But then he says, he doesn't just wash you with water. He immerses you in his spirit. He indwells you with himself. God himself will come to live in you because of the way this one baptizes In Jesus, people are not just changed on the outside. I hope you know this, church. Listen, with Jesus, you're radically transformed on the inside. He didn't come to make you better. He came to make you new. John's baptism was wonderful. It was great. It was temporarily pointing to a greater baptism. One that will not only make you clean on the inside, but forever clean. Forever clean. So let me conclude by being like John for just a moment. You know, John the Baptist was a wild man. <laughs> He's a wild man. One time the the Pharisees, you know, there's a contrast between the preachers of the day. And you notice Jesus didn't go to the Pharisees to be baptized. He went to John the Baptist. But one of the contrasts that Mark gives us is in their clothing, in their apparel. John wore camel's hair. He wore a, just sort of a scrappy looking leather belt. He ate locusts and honey. He was, 
He was not caught up in, you know, Prada and uh, Gucci and all the things. He was not caught up in all of that. He could care less about all of that. He was out in the wilderness and he's beckoning, beckoning people to leave their lush city, their, their fleeting joy and come to someone who is greater than all of that. Even in his clothing, he's saying none of that matters. Come to Christ. He'll satisfy you on the inside. This is what John's doing. There's a contrast, though, between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. They were all dressed to the nines. You know, when they when they came in, they pushed people out of the way. They were, you know, hey, don't even don't look me in the eyes. You know, they're very high and mighty. Meanwhile, John's saying I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Right. This is a massive contrast. John's preaching this way, and I want to extend some of his message to us. Here's the first one. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Don't be deceived by the fleeting pleasures of this world. Come to Jesus. He is mightier. He is more glorious. Put all your faith and all your hope in Him. And I'm not just talking to the non-Christian here. Believer. Follower of Christ. Stop playing in the world thinking it will satisfy what only He can. Give your heart fully and completely to this One who is mightier and greater than all of it. You know He alone can forgive you. Do you believe that He alone can satisfy you? Repent of your sin. Second thing John would say to us today. Be baptized. Be baptized. If you belong to Christ... Having been washed in the blood of Jesus. Something in your heart should should resonate with the Ethiopian on the road with Philip in Acts chapter eight. You know, he's hearing Isaiah preached. Is this is this about this prophet or about someone else? And Philip says, this is about Jesus. You need to you need to trust in Jesus. Confess your sin, repent to God, trust in Christ. That Ethiopian was so stirred by the beauty of forgiveness in Christ that even he could be brought into God's family. He turns to Philip and says, look, there's some water. What keeps me from being baptized? And Philip says, let's do it. Let me ask you, what keeps you from being baptized? If you've never gone through the waters of confession and profession, confessing your sin. I'm a sinner who needs Christ and professing that he's the only one who saves and satisfies. If you've never, what are you waiting on? John says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Romans six, verse four, pulls these things together in a beautiful truth. 
to say that we are baptized into his death and his resurrection to walk in newness of life. If you're a believer who's never been baptized, submit to obey Christ in that way. Make that profession. I believe God will honor it. Do you, church? Yeah. All right. Then lastly, may we be a voice in our wilderness. John played a unique role in history. Don't get me wrong. But remember what John was proclaiming. He was proclaiming, the king is coming. Ready your hearts. What is different about our day? Are we not to be like John the Baptist? The king is coming back. Repent of your sin. Ready your heart before God. Church, he's calling you and me to this message. You're not to just be hearers of the gospel, but proclaimers of it. He's equipped you. All you need to know is that you needed him and he met you there. Preach that gospel to your world. God, change your life and the world around us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.